Praise the Lord. Oh, praise God. Good to be with you and uh, to have another Bible study together. All of you online as well. And uh, I think we've probably got, I don't know, 30, 30 some people here tonight. And I celebrate each of you that are here. When you hear me say what I'm about to say, don't think that I begrudge uh, you at all or I'm thinking about specifically those that aren't here. Okay? I celebrate the fact that you're here. But it also breaks my heart as a pastor of the number of people who aren't here who are a part of this church. And I hope that if you're not here that you're online and you're, you're, you're catching it there. But the part that has troubled my spirit since we started learning what the Lord wants us to know about the end times was the number of people who call this their church home who aren't here or aren't online Wednesday night and are missing this important revelation and information that as a pastor that troubles my spirit a lot but I celebrate you thank you for being here thank you for connecting and being a part of this online as well I would ask you to encourage others that you know uh, sit by you on Sunday or something you know starts at the grassroots level lean over to them and go hey didn't see you on Wednesday night where were you (laughs) and that would be a big help praise God Seven Churches of Asia, Laodicea, Part 2, and the end of, I don't want to say the end of study on the seven churches, it's just the end of this series for this time period, which I don't even know if I can count that far back on how long we've actually been doing the seven churches of, uh, of Asia, but there's so much. So I mean, I've, every week that I study, I discover things I've never seen before. Haven't you discovered so much more from these this one, what two chapters, than ever before? I hope so. I hope so. Uh, so this is part two of Laodicea. Let's read. Uh, if you turn your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter three, we'll read verses fourteen through fifteen and just get get right to it. I'll do my best to get everybody out of here by eight o'clock. And uh, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Ready? Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We spent already, I think, two weeks going through verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, and I know it spoke to my heart. I hope it spoke to yours. Verse 70, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The Lord just keeps the hits coming, doesn't he? (laughs) What a miserable letter that this church got. It says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. Say, I receive the word tonight. All right, so what we have here in uh, verse 17 through 18 is the Lord says, because you say I am rich. And remember, they were from a very wealth, the wealthiest, the wealthiest city in the land at the time. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. This is some great, there's some great teaching even right here. I could preach a series of messages just from these two. And white garments that you may be clothed, that, your, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. The church at Laodicea had an unrealistic view of itself. I, uh, would, I pray that we never find ourselves in a position of thinking ourselves to be something that we're not or not being something that we think we are and don't have a false image of ourselves. You know, this particular church, uh, it prided itself, the city specifically, so I know the church did the same thing, prided itself on its bank accounts, prided itself on its great facilities, prided itself probably on numbers. Look at all the people who are coming uh, you know, it said, we got money, we got material things, we got all the, this is a metaphor because they didn't have them back then, we got all the lights, the smokes in the mirror, and everything else that's supposed to be, make church uh, uh, entertaining, we got fancy sanctuaries, um, we got buildings like nobody else, we're the church at Laodicea, but they had a false image of themselves, unfortunately they came to such a place of earthly success that they, they found themselves in a spot where they didn't think, they didn't see that they had any need. They, they actually came to a place where they also lost their need for Christ the way they once had when they first started, because I'm going to bet that when they first started out, they started out on fire for the Lord, but something happened over time, and I think what happened was worldly goods got a hold of them. It was a worldly city. And we all know that worldly goods, money, and wealth are not God's measuring stick at all for success. How often you attend church is not God's measuring stick. How much you put in the offerings is not God's measuring stick. How well you serve in the ministry of helps or sing, how loud you sing on the praise team. No, how, the measuring stick is how we love others as Christ loves us. That's the true measure. By this, they will know you are my disciples. That's the measuring stick. The, the Laodicean church found themselves probably in high society. Probably had a you know, big wig, rich preacher. They were a rich city. So everything that we've read so far in all the letters from Christ, you can apply what he wrote in the letters to what was actually happening locally, locally in, in the community, in the city, geographically. Um, so they, they thought they were pretty high society, but Jesus said, um, my assessment is you're wretched. Wretched is not a good word. You know, wretched is not a good word. My little, my little daughter, Erica, when she was, I don't know, early teens, maybe 13 in that age, she was constantly, anytime she did anything wrong or didn't take care of something around the house or do her chores, it was always her, her, her response was, I'm sorry. It was always, I'm sorry, whether it was picking up the clothes or anything. I'm sorry. And one day I called, now I'm a dictionary guy, right? So I called her over to, uh, to me and I said, um, 
I want you to go something to the effect, I want you to go look up the word wretched, because until you feel wretched about the things that you're not doing, don't come back to me and say, I'm sorry. Wretched is a, that's a miserable word, isn't it? Jesus said, you think you're all that in a bag of chips, but I'm telling you, you're wretched. They thought they were happy, but Jesus said they were miserable. See, they had a real false image of themselves. They thought they were high on the hog, and they were happy, and everything was good, and all the bills were paid, and, and Jesus said, you're wretched, and you're miserable. Uh, <laughs> the view probably was there wasn't a richer, richer church in town than the first church of Laodicea. And a, and a rich church always gets a, a little bit of a bad reputation. When I first came here, and, and uh, almost nine years ago now, and hooked up with some of the pastors in the church, they thought that the, the word in town was we were the rich church just outside of town. Now, we weren't, that, that had a bad image associated with it. We are the high and lofty ones. We're the ones that think we're better than anybody else, blah, blah, blah. That wasn't the case. Thank God we had all our bills paid and, and money was flowing and things were good, amen? But it, it, you end up getting a back, bad reputation there. But interestingly, in all that, Christ said, you are spiritually bankrupt. You're wretched, you're miserable, you're bankrupt. There wasn't a more poverty, spiritually impoverished church anywhere than Laodicea. No one got a scathing condemnation like Laodicea did. Now keep, keep in mind that Laodicea prided itself on its financial wealth. The city did, all the people in the city did, the churches did, I'm sure. Uh, and it prided itself on its manufacture of clothing and its trade of clothing. It also prided itself on uh, medical, specifically ISAV, which, of course, is mentioned in Jesus' letter. So let's just talk about those three things for a minute. Wealth. All the money and the riches uh, and all the material stuff in the world can't buy happiness. How many of you all know that? That's true. Can't buy you peace of mind. Can't buy you health. No amount of money is going to get you what you need. It's been said that a man, if all that a man has to meet life with is wealth, he is poor indeed. But if a person has faith tried in the fire of adversity, he is rich indeed. I don't know. I don't mind raising my hand. Anybody in here ever had to go through the fires of adversity? Oh, those of you who didn't raise your hands are lying, and we'll have to deal with that in another Bible study. All of us have had to go through the fires of troubles and trials and health and adversity in our life. And if you go through those things, what is this old statement? That which don't kill you makes you stronger. You know, the trials of adversity can make you rich. I don't welcome trials. I don't want trials. I don't like trials. But we're instructed in the Scripture not to think it a strange thing when various trials, <laughs> a variety of troubles comes knocking on your door. Don't think it a strange thing because it's going to purify you like gold being purified in the fire. First Peter chapter 1 Verse 6 and 7 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't want to stand before the Lord with all kinds of gold and money and think I'm all that. 
I'd rather stand before the Lord, having endured and fought the good fight through my various trials, that the Lord made my life golden in his eyes because of those trials. So those things can make you rich. What about the clothing? Laodicea prided itself on the magnificent manufacture of clothing. In fact, the sheep from Laodicea uh, and the wool that came from those sheep was world-renowned in terms of the clothing and the material they were able to make from those sheep. And yet Christ said, you're naked. I mean, this is a letter of, of uh, paradox. Not paradoxes, but of opposites, a dichotomy. He's, you think you're this, but you're actually this. You got all those clothes, and you think... How many of you like clothes? Can I get a witness from somebody? Oh, just the ladies raise their hands. I raise my, I like, I like buying new clothes. I love getting clothes, but you know, clothes and apparel and all that stuff and all the wealth in the world, it ain't nothing compared to what's going on in the heart, what's going on in the mind, what's going on in the spirit of the person. Can you say amen? I don't want the Lord to look at any one of us and say, okay, you had, you know, you were dressed well, but you were naked. And and in the Jewish life, for the Lord to say naked is to speak of shame. There was nothing more shameful for the Hebrew than to be publicly naked. Many of the enemies, you'll read in the scripture, that many of the enemies that drug them through the streets and marched them through the streets did so uh, with those people being naked, uh, unclothed completely. We see that even in some of the horrible pictures of the Holocaust and the Jewish people having to march Naked. That's a shameful, shameful, shameful thing for them. Uh, it's also been said, one commentarian said, there's little point in a man adorning his body if he has nothing to adorn his soul. That might, you might want to write that one down. That's a good one. Uh, there's little point in a person adorning their body if they have nothing to adorn their soul. Hmm. May our souls be adorned with garments of righteousness, with the peace of the Lord, with the riches we get from God, whether we have nothing at all in this life, we have everything in Christ Jesus, right? What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, <coughs> excuse me, says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be, <clears throat> excuse me, my soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride ordains herself with her jewels. We have a spiritual adornment on us that really matters to God. Then we get to their third thing that they were very proud of. They were very proud of their wealth, very proud of their clothing manufacturer, and very, cl- very proud of their Uh, medical expertise, specifically in the ear and eye, but mostly ISAV was the big deal, was world-renowned. It prided itself on its famous ISAV, yet the Lord says, you're blind. You're blind to your own uh, nakedness. See, they had a, a completely false image of themselves. They saw themselves in the wrong way. They were oblivious Dear God, help us to never get here. They were oblivious to their spiritual destitution. They were oblivious to their spiritual shame. It's warm in here, isn't it? Somebody want to turn the fan on for me? Does anybody know how to do that other than me? Got it for me? Three guys jumping up. All right. 
Kind of, kind of warm in here this evening. I think the thermostat said, I should say the thermometer said it was 70 some odd degrees, but I know the AC's not been on, so under these lights, y'all, it's warm. You get it? Okay. The uh, rheostat doesn't work. It's all one speed. <laughs> oh, that feels so good. There's nothing like having a bald head that's sweating and then gets a breeze. I'm telling you. It's like, it's like instant personal air conditioning. I'm just telling you. Right, Dave? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Praise God. I salve. They were oblivious. They were, they were blind to their own spiritual destitution. How far down the rabbit hole do you have to go to not even realize how spiritually dead you are? That's a horrible horrible thing. It's been said that the beginning of all change and improvement is to see one for who oneself really is. You got to take a good look at yourself. You have to do an honest evaluation. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. We should constantly be giving ourselves a checkup from the neck up and giving ourselves a heart check Checking ourselves, not against what someone else says about us, but what the Word of God has to say for us, and to let it be a mirror in which we can see the image that we believe Christ wants to see in us. If you don't look in the mirror, uh, I don't have too much of a problem because I don't have hair to worry about. So I could go for days and not look in the mirror, and I wouldn't look any different to you. But some of y'all, if you didn't look in the mirror for days, there ain't no telling what we'd be seeing on church time, Right? So we got, to, we got to examine ourselves, we got to look at ourselves and, 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 and look past that. Michael Jackson wrote the song, The Man in the Mirror, you know? And he was talking about more than just his image looking back at him, but what's inside. And we got to examine ourselves. Who would have ever thought I'd use Michael Jackson as an example for good living? Uh, now we get to Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, and this is really cool because he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Now I don't know about you, but I never, I never liked reproof. I never liked discipline. There was never a time in my life that I recalled a spanking being one of the most enjoyable moments of my week. Uh, you know, or in my case, a beating, probably like some others in this room. Um, yet the Lord says, those whom I love. I don't know that I ever received a spanking that I knew it came from a place of love. I say spanking because that really wasn't the word. The word goes way deeper. It usually was out of anger, which left you feeling, or in my case, left me feeling like I did not measure up and I could never be good enough and I could never make things right in the eyes of my father, my dad. Yet the Lord says those whom he loves, he reproves, and he disciplines, he chastens. Those whom he loves, he spanks. He don't beat. And he doesn't spank out of anger. He spanks out of love. He corrects, he disciplines, he adjusts. The best thing a person can do, quite frankly, is to examine themselves and make some adjustments himself before the Lord has to come along and do it himself. That's the best thing to have happen in your life. But why does the Lord deal so harshly with Laodicea? Think about it. Is it because they're lukewarm? 
Is it because they were blind spiritually? Is he dealing so harshly with them because they had such a false image of themselves? No. He is dealing so harshly. This is the beauty of this story. Because this is the most scathing condemnation of all the seven letters. And yet we get to this one spot. And he says, the reason that I'm dealing so harshly with you is because I love you. And even in this moment, we see the grace and the mercy of God, you know, quite frankly, spread wide in the arms of Christ when he says to be zealous and repent. He gives them his mercy and his grace shows up. And you know, when the Holy Spirit comes along and convicts you to get your attention Recognize that what he's doing is, is doing it because he loves you. And I'm going to probably talk a little bit more about conviction on Sunday morning because I think we have a wrong image of conviction. We think of conviction like the person who got convicted to go to prison. They've also been condemned. They're, they've been convicted. But this conviction, this conviction is not to be messed up with con- condemnation because the conviction here isn't about condemnation, it's about a convincing. To be, I have a conviction that Jesus loves me. I am fully persuaded, I am fully convinced. That's what that conviction means. And, when the whole, and we've all, quite frankly, really read that scripture incorrectly because he didn't come to convict us as believers. He came to convict the world of sin. So we're going to look at that probably a little deeper on Sunday morning. But nonetheless, even that being said, I still say that I would I, I just put out the welcome mat of conviction from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, when I'm taking a left turn and I can't see it because I'm spiritually blind, then convince me of the way I should go. That's the conviction that I'm talking about. Convince me of the right turn that I'm supposed to make. He, he'll, why will he do that? And if I won't listen... My Lord loves me so much that he will put a hardship potentially in front of me to get my attention, to pay attention to that convincing, convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's mad at me? Nah. Because he's judging me? No. Why? Because he loves me. That's why. So in that case, I say, welcome, put the welcome mat that says, the, convicting, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is welcome in my house. But don't look at conviction like condemnation. We've abused that. No, no, we're not in, no, God's not into condemnation, but he will convict you. Excuse me. He's not into condemnation, but he will condemn you. No. And so I want to bring some light to that on Sunday morning. It'll be a real, I think it'll be a real blessing to you. Verse 19 is a quote, actually, from Proverbs 13. And it's really cool. It says, those whom I love, I reprove discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. And it's a quote from Proverbs 13 with one word altered. And that one word altered is important because the word altered is the word love. Throughout the New Testament, the word love is typically from the Greek agape, which means an unconditional love. And almost throughout the entire Gospels, when Jesus spoke about love, it was the term agape, <clears throat> unconditional love. But in this case, and, it's, and, and from the Greek transliteration of the Old Testament Septuagint in Proverbs, it's also still that agape, unconditional love. But Jesus uses a different word. He uses the word philio. 
And that's an interesting thing for Jesus to use that word because it, is, it actually goes maybe even a little deeper than agape love because it says this is a, a love that's based on a personal attachment that I have with you. We translate filial love as brotherly love. You could almost paraphrase this word to say, you know, it's for people who are the dearest to me whom I exercise the sternest discipline. Did you hear that? I know that's like, wow, that was really nice. Those that are dearest to me, the Lord says, are the ones that I have to execute the sternest discipline on. Because he has, he knows what his plans are for you. He knows what your potential is. He knows what, he sees the end from the beginning. He knows what you're to become. And he knows that if Satan has his way in your thinking and in your actions, that you can be detoured for the very plan that he has purposed for your life. Psalm 94, 12, blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach. Job 5, 17, behold, Happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. Now, I hope that the goal for all of us would not to be in a position to need chastening. But we're human. <laughs> we got stinking thinking. We got the wrong words coming out of our mouth. Me included. And if I don't change him and my bride can't change him, then Jesus steps in and says, well, I'll fix Rick. Because i got plans for Rick. He's got a great destiny, and I'm going to make sure that he fulfills his destiny, so I'm going to have to straighten him up a little bit. And then when that happens, I shouldn't fight against God. I shouldn't complain against God. I should thank the Lord. Thank you, Father, for what you're teaching me. That's the direction that we should have in that. We should, as I said a few minutes ago, put a welcome mat outside of our door, the door of our life that says the conviction of the Holy Spirit is welcome here. But please again, and I'm really hammering this tonight because I'm going to bring it to life, I believe, on Sunday morning, is I'm not talking about condemnation. John chapter 16, verse 7 through 11, that's where it's at, and it says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the church of sin. He will convict all my children of their sins. Not what he said. Have you ever noticed that, y'all? He will convict those that are saved of sin. He will convict the world of sin. It's through that conviction to the world that begins the drawing, when a person begins to know they're doing something wrong, to be drawn and wooed to the Holy Spirit. And he says, and I, and, and I will also convict the world of sin, and I will convict of righteousness. If you're to be convicted of anything, it shouldn't be of sin, it should be of righteousness. Everything that you do in life, I'm getting way too into my Sunday message. He goes on to say, what, he says, uh, Trust me, the idea to write this message came after I wrote tonight's Bible study, and I actually thought about going in there and taking this out because I want to use it on Sunday, but it fit to right here. He is, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. That's not believers. That's unbelievers. Of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is, is to be judged. Who's to be judged? 
Huh? Uh-uh. The ruler of this world. We've got to start reading the scripture better, don't we? Yeah, I love it. All right. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, oh my gosh. Everybody say, oh my gosh. I'm about to upset a whole bunch of holy cows. Because we have used this text so out of context that if it don't blow your socks off, you're already not wearing any. Oh, Jesus. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. How many know that this text has been used for centuries as a reach for the lost to find salvation? Correct? It's not its context. It's, it's not the context here. Although it's been used, I suppose there could be some ministerial license, I suppose, to use it in the context of trying to convince someone for salvation. That's not, it's not a call to sinners. That's not the purpose of the context. Remember that this letter was written to the church in Laodicea. All right, they're the people who are getting the letter, the church at Laodicea. In context, this, vic, this verse pictures the Lord standing outside the Laodicean church, knocking to become welcome in the place that he ought to be welcome in because that's his place to begin with. This verse has a whole new image to me. He should have always been there. He should have been welcomed all the time. He should have never been forced out. So in context of this letter... He's saying, hey, church at Laodicea, you forgot about me. Come on, I'm knocking at the door, would you, for crying out, let me in, crying out loud, let me in. And we know the picture, there's no doorknob, and that means it has to be opened from the inside. Of course, that's been used about a person opening. I suppose there could be some ministerial license to use that scripture this way, but that's not the context. This is about a church that kicked Jesus out. And he's saying, I'm standing here knocking. I want to get back in. This is my church. I ought to be welcome in this place. This is not a, this is not a sentence in a letter written to the unsaved. It is a sentence in a letter written to a lukewarm church. We've got to keep the context correct on the things that we read. In many churches today, the Holy Spirit is duct tape. In the back room, the Holy Spirit is not welcome and he's not celebrated in the services. He's, he's tied up into a back room so as to not bring him out before everyone and to offend anyone and let something crazy happen in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's high time that the church of the living God stops being embarrassed of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen from somebody? And I, I made that pretty clear whether I did it correctly then or not, and I've grown a lot in the last nine years. Say amen, Richard. <laughs> uh, I'm a Holy Ghost man. We're going to be a Holy Ghost church. When this church was founded back in 1991 or something like that, it was a Holy Ghost church then. And over the course of time, it it got off course. It never kicked Jesus out, but it got off course a little bit. And the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, the freedom of the Holy Spirit to operate in the gifts of the Spirit was not so much welcomed as it had been before. And I tell you what, 
We're not going to have Jesus standing outside of Resurrection Life churches. Hey, would y'all let me in? It's my house. Why'd you kick me out? Why are you embarrassed of me? Now, I'm not saying we should have wackadoodle. That's a Diane word. Wackadoodle, crazy, nutty, goofy, out of order, nothing short of stupid stuff happening in the house of God. That's not how the Holy, the Holy Spirit operates. Now, he will do things that will seem weird to you. If you don't believe me, just become an Israelite with a cloud by the day and fire by night and a whole sea that parts in the middle, huh? I don't want that in church, do we? So, yes, when the Holy Spirit comes in and things begin to happen, it will... What? What's going on? What's happening? I remember the first time Diane and I were in a, a bilingual church, and, and it was a Spirit-filled bilingual church. And Diane always says it wasn't the Holy Spirit they were filled with, but that's a whole other story. Somebody would start speaking in tongues, and Diane would say, what's that? And I went, well, it ain't Mexican, baby. It ain't Mexican. Oh... We can't be embarrassed of the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you've done this. Maybe you've done this. I don't know. I pray that you haven't. You've invited somebody to church. And you prayed, oh, God, please don't let nothing crazy happen today. <laughs> or you've even called the preacher and went, you're not going to talk about such and such, are you? You think I'm kidding, right? <laughs> I just want to encourage you, do not pray that prayer because Jesus loves a good laugh. All right? We should just welcome. Um, that's, this, this to me is, verse 20 is the most telling verse in this whole letter. I can see, I could, I could, I could feel the angst and the frustration and the, and the heartbreak. Come on, y'all. Let me in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll just open, I'll come in and we'll dine together. No answer. So please read that scripture from here on out in the context that it was actually written in. Then we get to the very last verse. I got no clue what time it is. Oh, it's only 744. I'll get this done in an hour. Praise God. An hour from now. No, just kidding. Revelation 3, 21 through 22. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, and as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's beauty in this statement. There's beauty in this statement. This statement is saturated with mercy and grace. Think about it. The worst of the seven churches... And yet, it actually, all of them at the end said, he who overcomes gets such and such and such and such. And yet, the worst of the seven churches gets the loftiest reward for overcoming. This thing is soaking and dripping with mercy and grace and love from the worst of all the churches. He's saying to them that, I'll have you sit with me on my throne. There's not another church that got as lofty a reward as to sit on the throne with Christ and God. And that's what he says. 
probably the loftiest of all promises. There's not a higher degree of reward than to sit on the throne with Christ. Even to the very worst church, this, this to me just grips my heart of the, the amazing grace, the unending mercy, even to the very worst, even to the church that sickened him, there was grace and there was mercy. What a beautiful story. All the church needed to do in that case was to repent and get back to their first love. It doesn't matter how far one has fallen. This should be the message. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter how far you've gone backwards. The mercy, the grace, the love of God is there to pick you up in full embrace. Nothing will hold the love of God back from you. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 19. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's my God. Now, isn't it something that we could go through this entire study and read all about all the different churches and the areas that the Lord was unpleased with and the areas that in many cases he, he, he commended, although he did condemn as well, and we made it our goal to learn the things that he commended and reach toward those things and strive toward them and, and to discover the things he's condemned and say, no, we, don't, we want to stay away from that as far as we can. Through all of that, we get to the, the, the Lord's worst church. <laughs> the Lord's wor- the one that made him want to vomit. And his mercy shows up. You've got to let that soak in. Even here on Wednesday night with the good Bible folks, there's people who are probably wondering if God has forgiven them of something. His mercy, his love is greater far. I wish I could remember the lyrics of that song right now. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. Something to the effect, if all the scrolls of heaven were rolled back, his love couldn't be written from end to end. He loves us so much. This is what I get out of reading this. The interesting thing is that the message and the lessons of these letters are not confined to seven churches 2,000 years ago. I believe that through them, and I believe that in the number of weeks that we've been doing this, that the Spirit of God is still speaking, and the Spirit of God is even speaking to us right now through these letters, and He's going to continue to speak to every generation until He comes for those who will listen. He who has an ear, let him hear. Seems like a good place to say amen. Since that was His last word, wasn't it? (laughs) Praise God. Hang on a second. No, I'm not 
Facebooking. I'm just looking for the, the lyrics to this song. Because for me, I just finished this study, finished imparting to you what I have gleaned. And the thing I've gleaned most is the amazing grace and love of God. Here it is, and we'll close. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Let that be the message that you get from the study of the seven churches of Revelation. Give the Lord a praise in the house. Amen. Come on. Well, stand with me. Let me send you out blessed and dismissed tonight. I think anybody who's interested in a short service ought to start coming to Wednesday night Bible study, don't you think? Yeah. Oh. Father, thank you for what you have blessed us with in this in these number of weeks that we've taken this journey in preparing for your coming and in learning what you had to say in your letters to the seven churches of Asia. I pray, Lord, that though this study now be behind us, we would never get too far out of sight of it. And may we always remember that no matter how far down the rabbit hole we go or how far away from you we stray, your mercy your love, and your forgiveness and your grace constantly woos us and draws us back. And for that, Lord, I am forever grateful. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I call you all blessed. We'll see you on Sunday morning.